You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bowness, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, or service times, or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bowness. Well, this morning, uh, I'm going to start a new series, just taking our time looking through the letter of Philippians. Now, you probably are quite familiar with this, particularly if you've been around church for a while. Uh, for a while. There's some cracking quotes in here that you'll find on coffee mugs, fridge magnets, you know, the back of car bumper stickers and things like that. But actually, there's so much depth and there's a consistency to all of these things that Paul is saying that is knit together. Now, before I get there, In this day and age, just consider this. How do you begin a letter or an email or a text? I'm like, all of those things are different, aren't they? And the rules seem to be out of the window. I mean, do you start, like, acknowledging the person? Hey, Tom, (laughs) you know, or dear sirs, if you want to be formal or whatever, to whom it may concern, perhaps, or yo. Nobody does that. Don't do that. Nobody does that. Maybe you're going to introduce yourself, you know, because if I'm texting Jess, well, I don't go, hey, Jess, it's Tom, (laughs) because she's kind of got that already. But I might, if I'm texting somebody for the first time, I might say, hey, uh, so-and-so, this is Tom from Riverview Church. Uh, So I might kind of explain a bit about myself in a letter or an email. I'm a pastor from a small town in uh, Scotland. Uh, Or you might say, you know, I'm a a science teacher from a a small school in Ochtamochti. I just wanted to get Ochtamochti in there because it's just such a great word. Perhaps, (laughs) Perhaps you kind of indicate pretty early in the conversation what your intent is. You kind of want to get to the point as as quickly as possible. You might use those two letters, R-E, with the two little dots after it. Semicolon? Colon? Colon. Okay. Jess is the grammatical one. I just speak. Uh, She puts the commas in for me. (laughs) You might say, I'm writing to you because... Dot, dot, dot. Is that right? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I, I'm, I, I write to you concerning this particular issue. Or maybe you're going to use an eye-catching hook, because you know on emails you have the subject line. And if you're like me, if it's a boring subject line, you're not going to go into the email, are you? You, you want something to catch your eye from that subject line. And, and, and maybe that there are things that people do to try and get you to read their articles, like six ways to improve your health or your welfare or your bank balance or whatever. Uh, Or don't read this unless. That's a good one. Uh, You know, maybe you've got one that says, government minister throws crazy steps in Aberdeen nightclub. (laughs) That's going to get your attention. (laughs) And then the classic that I find in Christian circles is, is things like, the devil doesn't want you to read this. Because, you know, if you're a card-carrying evangelical, you're going to be like, right, well, I'm reading it. (laughs) Don't care what the devil wants. You know, in the opening paragraph, you probably generally want to summarize from the start, indicate what you're going on about, and then spend the rest of the text working back from that, putting detail in, and stuff like that. Now, have you ever written a complaint letter? Anyone done that? Brilliant. I never do, obviously. Um, Do do you find that your language and your style of writing changes quite dramatically when you do that? 
dear sirs, definitely that's where dear sirs or, or to whom it may concern becomes quite appropriate. I found this amazing letter. It's a letter by a disgruntled uh, passenger on a Virgin Atlantic jet, okay? I'm just going to read you a bit of this because it's, it's just gold, okay? Dear Mr. Branson, straight to the top. <laughs> ref, instead of RE, ref. Mumbai to Heathrow, 7th of December, 2008. I love the Virgin brand. I really do, which is why I continue to use it despite a series of unfortunate incidents over the last few years. The latest incident takes the biscuit. Ironically, by the end of the flight, I would have gladly paid over a thousand rupees for a single biscuit following the culinary journey of hell that I was subjected to at the hands of your corporation. <laughs> okay, look at this, Richard. Just look at it. Oh, well, I can do that, sorry. <laughs> look at this, Richard. Just look at it. I, I imagine the same questions are racing through your brilliant mind as were racing through mine on that fateful day. I love that they're comparing their brilliant mind to Richard Branson's there. What is this? Why have I been given it? What have I done to deserve this? And which one is the starter and which one is the dessert? You don't get to a position like yours, Richard, with anything less than a generous sprinkling of observational power. So I know you will have spotted the tomato next to the yellow shafts of sponge on the left. Yes, it's next to the sponge shaft with, uh, without the green paste. That's got to be a clue, hasn't it? No sane person would ever serve a dessert with a tomato, would they? Well, answer me this, Richard. What sort of animal would serve a dessert with peas in it? I know it looks like a bargee, but it's in custard, Richard. Custard. <laughs> it must be the pudding. <laughs> she goes on. I won't read the whole letter because it's long. I'll just read this last paragraph. Well, you'll be fascinated to hear that it wasn't custard. <laughs> It was a sour gel with a clear oil on top. Its only redeeming feature was that it managed uh, to be so alien to my palate that it took away the taste of the curry emanating from our miscellaneous central cuboid of beige matter. Perhaps the meal on the left might be a dessert after all. Wow. I mean, talk about hold no prisoners. Get to the point early. Get into your detail. Make your feelings known. But I want to ask you something a bit more serious than that this morning. What if the letter that you had to write wasn't a letter of complaint from a disgruntled passenger on an aeroplane? What if you had to address some significant concerns, questions, issues, or circumstances? What would that do to the tone of your letter? What if the people you were writing to were facing hardship or persecution or famine? Divisions, deceptions, worries, anxieties. Where, where would you begin? How, how would you develop the thoughts of that letter? How would you encourage them? Like, if you want to get across contentment and joy and happiness and peace and security, positivity, purpose and fulfillment and identity and belonging, if you want to address positive things like that, these are good things to strive for. Good things to provide and resource for other people, for our families and friends. But reality is a cruel and fickle friend, isn't it? Because however much we talk about rejoicing in all things, the reality is we're going to have to fight for that position in our own lives. 
How do you find contentment in a world that always promotes more? That always says you don't have enough? How do you find peace and security when there's so much to rob us of it around? Even in our country, even in safe old Blighty, there is so much that can rob us of our peace and security. And we're even at war with ourselves. So where do we find peace and security when we can't even wrestle our own minds? How do you find enduring joy in a world of such disruption and tragedy and cruelty? How do you face the threat of opposition or oppression or discrimination or persecution? You know, the book of Philippians, as we will see, actually written about 2,000 years ago, hits all of those things right on the head with a massive hammer. Paul gives us some groundbreaking, solid answers to those questions. And he's actually talking to people that are facing the prospect of hardship and persecution. But in doing so, he also answers some of our modern questions, like, is community, is that a genuinely possible thing? A community built on love and respect and and care? Is that possible in a world that keeps imposing views? It keeps forcing conflicting and shifting ideologies on us? Is it possible to agree? Or is it possible to find friendship and fellowship in the midst of that? How do I define myself? How do I find significance? How do I show myself to be worthy or rise above the rest when everybody else is trying to do the same thing? And their pursuit of being the best is pushing me down or vice versa. How do we deal with that? How do I find purpose or fit in when I feel like a misfit? Or maybe you're in a different place this morning. You might think, how do I fit in when I'm surrounded by misfits? (laughs) By the way, if you think everyone else is a misfit in here and you're the only one who's not, (laughs) Um, how can I feel positive about myself when I keep messing up I'm trying to convince myself that it's all okay but I just I can't get it now if you were to write such a letter to address those kind of issues to encourage people let me ask you this and and I'll say from the outset I might break this down into two messages and, and stop halfway through today if you were to write a letter to the church in Afghanistan, right now. What would your opening paragraph look like? What would you say? Do you know where to begin? Like, I struggle to know where to begin when somebody's bereaved, and you you go in to see the family, and it's just like, what do I say? I, I was talking to the ministers, the other ministers in town recently, and one of them said their first funeral was somebody who took their own life. And that's their first, as a minister, that was the first funeral they had to take. That was the first family, bereaved family they had to deal with. How do you, nothing equips you for that. How would you write a letter to Afghanistan facing the threat of Taliban persecution? What would your opening paragraph look like? And that situation there is not a thousand miles away from what was facing the Philippian church persecuted in a Roman colony that actually, and we'll come back to this in other, in other messages as we go on, but the, the dominating force was Roman ideology and multi-religions, multi-deity. So Christianity was a stark, unwelcome contrast to that. They were facing persecution. In fact, the thing that says, uh, where Paul talks about shining like stars, some uh, commentators believe that's a reference to human torches. Because that was kind of going on or about to go on in Nero's time, not long after this. 
Now, last week, Len brought a message called five, uh, Paul's Five Words, and he said, eternally the Lamb of God. Those are his five words. I want to encourage you today, because Paul's going to use just 37 words in his opening paragraph, 31 if you're reading it in Greek, okay? These words, there's, there's a few words in that that have massive power, but remember, the main thing is always the main thing, the Lamb of God eternally. The main thing is always the main thing. So let's have a quick look at these opening verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That if Paul was writing to the church in Afghanistan today, he would open with this. I'll tell you how I know that, because Paul opens all of his 13 letters, every single one, with the phrase, grace and peace to you, or grace to you and peace from, every time, without fail. So let's break this down a little bit firstly, and I'll do this bit fairly quickly. He says, Paul and Timothy, and I want you to notice the next word. What is it? Servants. If you look at most of his other letters, he says, he'll say somewhere in there, an apostle. He'll kind of say, this is who I am. He'll, he'll assert his authority. He doesn't hear. What he does is he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now the word that he uses is actually doulos, and actually it kind of translates as slaves. Now hang on a minute, because there's a sinister connotation to that with our modern thinking, isn't there? We, we don't like the word slaves, but this is not talking about being forced like cajoled, this is talking about being bought at a price and then willingly choosing to serve. Willingly choosing to be bound to Christ for the reason that he's been bought at a price. Actually, a better phrase maybe would be bond servants. It's not a phrase that we use in English much, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm your bond servant. You go to work on Monday morning, speak to your boss and say, don't worry, I'm your bond servant. It's not going to fly. But actually, it's a much better phrase to use here because it talks about being bound to Jesus volitionally, gladly. And Paul will make reference to his chains in a few verses, the actual chains that he's in, and make a comparison there. You know, I'll just say here, everyone in this room is bound to something. Uh, think about that a second. You're either bound to Christ or you're bound to something else. Now, if you're bound to Christ, you're bound volitionally. You've, you've got freedom within that. In fact, that binding to Christ gives you freedom. But if you're not bound to Christ, you are bound to something else. And that thing does not give you freedom. It really does hold you in chains. And the other thing I just want to draw out of this first line is that the fact that he uses the word servants, slaves, bond servants, doulos, it really shows something here of Paul's humility in coming to this church, uh, and that is something that he's also going to pick up in a beautiful poem that points to Jesus being the best example of what that humility really looks like. 
We'll get there in a couple of weeks. The, the second thing is that he says to God's holy people, in fact, to all God's holy people. We could translate that as to all God's saints, but sometimes in our modern Western mind, we have the, the view that saints is like St. Mary, St. Catherine, so like some saint who did something many years ago and is venerated by the church. No, if you believe in Christ, if you are bound to him, you are a saint. You are one of these all God's holy people, set apart, sanctified, purified saints. And then he says to and to the overseers and deacons. Do you see where he puts the church before the leadership? How he introduces himself, Paul and Timothy, servants. And he's showing these leaders as servants. You know, I serve the church. In fact, I've been thinking about this because people say, oh, you know, what church, or what do you do? What's your role in review? And like, I hate saying things like, oh, I, I lead the church in Bonas. Like, I hate that because it just sounds like, yeah, I'm the leader. Uh, no, so I'm, ch- I'm choosing to say now, I, I serve at Riverview Church in Bowness, because that's exactly what leadership is in this context. No hierarchy, servant-heartedness. By the way, it's a choice. <laughs> you determine whether you're servant-hearted or not. The servants of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus, saints in Christ Jesus. Now, all of this information that I've just given you as a brief intro, it all packs out in the rest of the letter. These things all keep coming back up, and he expands on them. But then we come to this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a throwaway salutation like, you know, hi, (laughs) how's it going? You know, like in Israel today, even today, you'll walk around and people will greet you with, Shalom. If you're in an Arabic country, they'll greet you with uh, salam. It's, it, it's kind of from the same word. It means peace, but because it's become so like ingrained, it just you, it comes off the tongue like, shalom. How's it going? You know, when you ask somebody, how are you? Half the time, you don't really want to sit down and like get the whole lot in front of you, do you? Like, I, and and when, I, when I have people say that to me, how are you? Like, I know, my, my brain works okay. I know they're not saying, right, let's sit down, let's get to grips with how you're doing. There, there are other ways to do that. They're saying, like, all right, <laughs> hi, mate. And all they want back is, like, yeah, yeah, good, thanks, how are you? And that's it. This is not that. This, this has such power. This means something significant and transformational. Like, if you can grasp, even if we stay on this verse for the rest of this year, if you as a church, if I could just grasp that one sentence, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, if we could really grasp that, how transformational that would be. And this isn't just like non-believers being transformed by the gospel, grace and peace to you. This is you, believer, being actively, continuously transformed by grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus. This means something to every human being who's ever lived. Ever. Look, these two words, listen to this, is amazing. I really don't know if I'll get through this like today because I want to... I don't want to rush. These two words have the power to rip up 
all of our failure, to eradicate all of our shame, to overshadow our regrets, to erase our sin, to to cleanse our guilty conscience, and to wipe out our common enemies of sin and death. That's how powerful that phrase is. And, and we read all of Paul's letters. You know, if you've got a Bible study program that you go to every morning and you begin the letter, we normally skip past these few verses to get into the juicy bits. But this really is the juicy bit. And everything else is just giving you the detail of that. And, and, and the thing I want you to notice really clearly here is these two words, grace and peace, they're not found from within yourself. They are given from the outside. You can search for a thousand years. You can go to the top of a mountain to find yourself. You will not find grace and peace somewhere in your own heart or in your own mind. And your pursuit of it will eventually wear you down so much that the opposite will be true. Grace and peace have to come from outside of ourselves into the inside. They are like, get this for an analogy, I've got two for you today. This one, grace and peace are like meteorites that crash into and obliterate evil and sin. They are the extinction level event for the demonic dynasty that has plagued this world with suffering and failure and division, hatred, anxiety, insecurity, inequality for millennia. Like these two words crash into Satan's schemes and it's heralding the end of all of his schemes. Now you could reasonably ask, if that is true, where is God in all of this. Where's God in the number of Christians who in the last 14 days have gone to glory? Where's God with all the grieving that's gone on? In Glasgow, they buried a 47-year-old healthy person on Friday who got COVID and died. Where's God? Where's God in Afghanistan right now as the Taliban are rampantly like reducing everything to rubble? I mean, that's a reasonable question, isn't it? If this is true, where's God in all this? Well, look, as with a meteorite, not everything is eliminated on impact. Actually, what happens is that the impact causes a cataclysmic event that overshadows the entire sphere. And it's a gradual thing. It may take hours, it may take days, but everything is going to be wiped out. That's what happened to the dinosaurs, so we're told. And not all of the dinosaurs would have died on that first impact. Some of them would have survived that only to find that there was no sun to provide life or that the water had just been polluted or evaporated. What God has done through Jesus Christ in bringing grace and mercy, grace and peace through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are two meteoric things that have crashed into the enemy's stronghold, obliterated on impact and continues to overshadow to the point where there will come a day where there is no more suffering, where there is no more death, where there is no more torture or tears. 
That is what grace and peace are achieving. That's why they are so important. Grace and peace trump terror and turmoil. And, you know, even though both these words, you might look at this, if you read Philippians this afternoon, you might go, hang on, Tom. Grace only appears twice more, the word, in in the book of Philippians. Peace. Yeah, we we all know peace comes back. It makes a comeback. And so we're going to circle back round to that at a later time because we know that classic verse, you know, do not be anxious about anything. So we know peace is going to make a a bit of a prominent comeback in in the letter. But you might notice they're not frequently mentioned, and yet the values of them underpin everything that Paul is talking about here. They work together. Peace has to do with welfare and security, undisturbedness. Wouldn't you love to be undisturbed? It's not talking about a lack of trouble in life, but a peace with God, by the way. That's what Paul's really getting at here. That's the peace that you really want. It's not peace from your neighbors. It's not peace from the people that wind you up in church. It's not peace from, you know, the, the, the noisy, like, um, wood factory down the road or whatever that disturbs your peace. It's peace in yourself that is peace with God. That's the real peace that we want to get to. And then grace has to do with the unmerited favor of God, utterly undeserved. Like completely, you've done nothing to merit what God has given you, what God is offering you. You're unable to. And yet it's offered freely with no reservation whatsoever. It's the act of determined loving kindness. That's what grace is. Compassion freely given where it's not deserved. It's the sovereign choice to bestow generosity and goodness on those who had previously spat and cursed and rejected him. In fact, grace is God bestowing that generosity as an offer to people that are in the act of spitting on him and cursing him and rejecting him. That's grace. So these two words stand out like thematic powerhouses. The theme that runs through Philippians. Not just in these two verses, not just in this letter, but through Genesis to Revelation. Every bit of communication that God has put out there between him and mankind, grace and peace are the undercurrents at the core of all of that. Paul considers them so important that he uses them in every single letter. Now, grace is given as we see here, at that point of acceptance or receipt of, you, you know, God says, here you are, and you take it. Like, Jess, there's a banana. Jess has the banana. Okay. <laughs> right. Fail. <laughs> but if I say, Jess, take the banana, and she goes, no, nah, you're right. Well, Jess doesn't have the banana. So if you're here today, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, he's saying... Take grace. Now, if you take that grace out of his hands freely, he's not going to go, come on, be a bit better for it. He's going to give that to you freely. Now, if he's going to do that and you don't take it, you don't have grace, but it's not, your, it's not his fault. That's not on God because he's offering it to you. Just consider that this morning if you don't know Jesus. Now, how are these mega themes of this letter if Paul only opens and closes the letter with this? I missed a point, sorry. Grace is with you, uh, to you, 
But at the end of his letter, he finishes it, grace with you. The beginning of the letter, grace to you. You take it, you receive it, but then from receiving it, goes with you. It's yours. Everything you do, grace to you, grace goes with you, okay? Grace bookends all of Paul's theology, the whole lot. Just like he starts and finishes every letter, by the way, grace to you, finishes it, grace with you, everyone, okay? His entire understanding of God, of Christianity, of the Christian's life, it all revolves around grace. Are you, are you kind of following with this? I'm going to definitely pick this up next week because what I really want to get to next week is to show exactly how grace is offered to you. And I also want to show you exactly how grace goes with you. And so church, listen, if you can grab a hold of this, it's why I'm not in a rush to preach the whole message in one day. If you can grab a hold of what God has put in your hand, this town has no chance of resistance to the kingdom of God. If you can grasp what it's like for grace to go with you, everything in you will change and continue to change. And it might be that you were you know, born again as a Christian many years ago, and somewhere along the line, it's like somebody has just doused the fire of your heart, or probably more commonly, doused the fire of joy in your heart. If you can grasp a hold of grace, that joy is going to set fire, and you will see it on your face. I've said this before, you know when you go to somebody's house and you know when they're a Christian, even as a non-Christian, walking into a Christian house, I knew there's something different. They're weird. (laughs) And I kind of like it. I don't know why they're weird. They, They don't talk like people talk. They don't act like people act. They have this crazy positive outlook on things. They have this assurance, this kind of stability that is unnatural, like weird. So to a non-Christian, they look at Christians who are filled with grace and therefore filled with joy, and they're like, I like it, but it's weird. But the problem is, too many times what non-Christians see is a Christian who's understanding of grace has diminished, whose joy has been doused. And what they see is crusty. Hey, don't be mad at me for saying this, because if this kind of makes you think, then it might be that you're the crusty one. Just consider that. But God doesn't want you that way. He wants you set free by grace. He wants it to be written on your face. Like, people should be able to look at you and just know. It's a bit weird, but I'm kind of drawn to it. Like there should be an attractiveness to believers. And my old pastor used to say, you know, we're supposed to be the joyful elect, but too often we're the frozen chosen. <laughs> I, I could probably crack off a few more one-liners about that, but the thing is, the sad thing is, that there are churches around the world that host people who are joyless. I'm not making a statement about salvation there. 
I think it's possible to lose that fire without losing your salvation. I, I think it's possible because I think it's happened to me, guys. And I, I'm going to bring this to a close. And uh, just take it off autopilot for a second. I, I, I just want to kind of go in the moment here. I think I don't have a rich enough understanding of grace. That might worry you because you're like, well, how are you going to teach me? <laughs> I don't think I have a... Or, or maybe I could have a rich enough knowledge about it. I mean, that's possible. I could read enough books. I mean, Philip Yancey, great, classic, What's So Amazing About Grace. Chuck Swindle, The Grace Awakening. You know, that there are great resources out there that will give me the information. But the information on its own is pointless. And in fact, what it'll do is it'll just make the crusty even more crusty. Because I'll be like, yes, I'm going to tell you about grace. And that's not grace. Like, grace puts a dance in your step. If you knew how much you're forgiven, if you knew how powerful that gift was to you, that was unplanned, by the way, the banana is just handy. If you knew how amazing that was, your life would be so radically different day to day. And that's not to say that you're not going to face difficulty. It's not, going to, it's not saying that you're not going to wake up one day and just feel like, I've had enough. But I tell you what grace will do, is it will set you on a journey of transformation that will continue until the day you go to glory. I want to be, when I'm an old Christian, I want to be one that's just beaming with joy. Regardless of my theological position, regardless of my desire for what church practice should look like or what a service should be like or what the music should be like, I just want to be filled with joy. I, I, I want to be able to say to young believers, you know, how powerful this gift is that's being given and it keeps on giving and it will hold you through your whole life and keep giving to you. If you haven't grabbed a hold of grace, get on your knees and ask God to give you a better understanding of what it is because it's not just about you. I mean, it's great to receive a gift here and it will change everything and it will set you on fire in your hearts again. But the thing that it will do is it will transform the town. The thing that it will do, I mean, no matter what building we go to, it's not going to be big enough. Because a building can't contain what is in here. That's what I want to grab a hold of. That's what I'm passionate for this church to grab a hold of. Grace and peace. Kareen, can you um, come up and Leslie and... Feel free to start playing just in the background, Leslie. Guys, I've just got a, a little bit more to say because a couple of weeks ago I was on holiday with Jess and we, and we went to Paul Nan's caravan. Bless you guys. That was a gift of grace to us. And, you know, guys, this year's been hard. The decisions that we're having to make, the things that we're having to navigate through, the, the, the tensions of, you know, this and that and the other. And, you know, I read an article by a pastor just this morning because I couldn't sleep again. So I read a Gospel Coalition article and, and this pastor was talking about how hard he had found it coming out of COVID. And he, he was going to stick with his church, even though everything in him was like, I just want to quit this. 
And, and one of the things he said was just after the election, he's, a, he's an American pastor, he said just after the election, by coincidence, he suddenly had his inbox full of complaints from his church. Full. Absolutely. And, and the complaints were like opposing each other. So one lot of complaints was you're not doing enough. You're not taking COVID seriously enough. You're not protecting us enough. The other one was like, you're bowing to this too much. You're not, you, you should be letting the church go free. I mean, conflicting complaints. How do you deal with that? Like there, there are people that are saying you're too liberal, but at the same time, there are people saying you're too conservative. Like, how do you deal with all of that? And I'm so grateful that I don't have a church where I get an inbox full of complaints. I mean, that's a joy. That's a gift of grace. The thing is, I just want Jesus to move. To move in our hearts, to move in our lives. When I was in that caravan, I went and I sat by a river and I was just like, Lord, I don't know what to do next. I don't know what to preach next. I, I don't know what meetings to start. I don't know what missions to start. I, I don't know God. I feel like I'm failing this church right now. That's where I was. I was sat, little Meg next to me, my dog was sat there, really good. And I was just crying out to God on this rock in the middle of a waterfall saying, please, I don't know where to go. And I started reading the book of Philippians and it, it got to this bit where it's like, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's it. For me to live is to serve him. And if I die, that's even better. And I knew in that moment, I had to start preaching through Philippians. Uh, and I'm not breaking this down like I normally do. Like, this is message one, message two, message three. These are all the titles. And before I even begin, I know everything that I'm going to say. I'm just going through and just saying, Lord, lead this. Because I think that's better for you. So we'll take as long as we take for grace to embed in this church in a fresh expression. I'm not saying you're graceless. I'm just saying there's so much more. Let's bow our heads.